How many of you guys like to go camping? Raise your hand. Yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> I'm not talking about glamping. You know, we're in a luxurious cabin with all the amenities of home. I'm talking about real camping. And so I know half of you that raised your hands just lied in church just now. Yeah, there's something amazing about going camping with your family. I mean, you get everyone away from all the distractions, out of cell phone reach, and you don't have any of the amenities of, of home, and you're just there together out in the wild beauty of God's creation. You're breathing the clean air, and your family gets renewed and refreshed, and you make memories that last a lifetime. There's just something amazing about going camping with your family, but... There's also something awful about going camping with your family because you, you get away from all the distractions and you're forced to concentrate on each other. No television, computer, or out of cell phone reach, and, and there you are in these you know, confined small tents where everyone's personality quirks are just amplified. Everyone's character flaws are so concentrated, you want to go back to the car and slam your head in the door. Or you want to just jump off of a beautiful, scenic overlook. I mean, there's something amazing about going camping with your family, and there's something awful about going camping with your family. Now, I want to reveal to you, Woodland Church, our family's three favorite camping spots. I was reluctant to do it at first because, you know, I mean, these are really good places, and I, I you know, just didn't want to give it away. But our family's three favorite camping spots or Hyatt, Marriott, and Hilton. And a fourth, Embassy Suites is, is great because of the two rooms, you know, and the, the free breakfast, but um, so probably four. Now, I have to say that the most amazing family vacation we've ever been on was a camping trip. And the most awful vacation we've ever been on was the same camping trip. And that's why we're starting this new series we're calling Family Camp. It's finding true connection with the people closest to you because... The greatest joys you'll experience in life will come from the people closest to you. And the greatest pain you'll ever experience in life will come from the people closest to you. And so God can take all of the amazing and the awful, all of the joy and the pain, and somehow weave it all together to draw us into a deeper connection with himself and a deeper relationship with those that we love. And that's the whole point of this series is growing in a deeper relationship. We're gonna have a lot of fun in this series. We're gonna also dig deep into God's word, but I just wanna kick it off today and help you understand the stages that every family goes through. First is what I call the dream stage. Husbands and wives have this dream image of what they want their family to look like, and they dream of the perfect marriage they dream that they're going to have the perfect family with perfect kids, and they're going to be perfect parents and not make all the mistakes that their parents did. And really, it's not the dream stage. It's denial. That's what it is. It's just flat-out denial because there's no such thing as a perfect family. Now, how do you know if you're in this denial stage? Well, you say things like, we will never do what our parents did. We're gonna do everything right in raising our kids. Or you look over and you see some dysfunctional family and you go, wow, they are messed up. 
I'm glad we're not gonna do that. That means you're just in denial. But then there's a second phase, and that's dysfunction. The second phase, dysfunction, and really every family starts out at the dysfunction stage. All families are dysfunctional to some degree, and the quicker you admit that, the quicker you can put the fun back in dysfunction. And that's so true. Have you ever noticed it is really hard to find what we would call a really healthy family in the Bible? As I was preparing for this series, you know, I'm looking at all these Bible families, you know, and looking at, well, you know, can I focus on this family, that family? And as you do that, you realize that it's hard to find what we would think of as a really healthy family in the Bible, but you can find lots of really dysfunctional, messed up families in the Bible. It all started with the first family, Adam and Eve. I mean, they disobeyed God in such a devastating way that the consequences, you know, were really felt through all of humankind. And then their firstborn son, Cain, murdered his younger brother, Abel, and then ran away and became the world's first fugitive. That's dysfunctional. That was the first family. And then think about this, Abraham and Sarah. You know, the great man of faith, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, you know, the father of faith. Sarah was so grieved over her infertility that she, in the middle of her pain, made a terrible decision, a really dumb decision, and she gave her servant, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham, so that Hagar would carry their surrogate child, and when the child is born, Sarah is then filled with jealous rage, and she abuses Hagar, sends Hagar and her son out into the wilderness to fend for themselves, and all through this sordid ordeal, Abraham is a passive man, the most dysfunctional thing of all. He's like, I had to stay out of this one, you know? Now, he was glad to participate when she gave him Hagar, you know, to have the surrogate child. Okay, if you insist, you know? And it, but then, but then he's like, yeah, you know, I'm not getting involved, these two women here, you know, and I'm staying out of this one. I'm just a pawn in the game of life. I'm just a little cog in the wheel. And here he is, this great man of faith. That's dysfunctional. And then think about Isaac and Rebekah. They have these two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac, he liked Esau better and let everyone know it. And Rebekah liked Jacob better. She let everyone know it. And they created the world's worst sibling rivalry. I mean, you just go on and on through Scripture all these dysfunctional families. Joseph, you know, the prince of Egypt. And, you know, Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him because Joseph's father played favorites with him and he bought him a really expensive coat and he didn't buy his brothers a coat like that. So the brothers were so jealous, they decided we're gonna kill Joseph. But then Reuben, the older brother, steps forward with some common sense and he goes, guys, what are you thinking? Killing your little brother over jealousy? No, let's just trade him as a slave to the Egyptians coming through, and then tell father that a wild animal ate him. That's dysfunction. And then you got wise Solomon, who unwisely marries a thousand women. Need I say anything else to that one? I mean, dysfunction. And so it's like, I'm so surprised. All these families had so much dysfunction. And you could just go on and on and on. Why does the Bible point out so many families that have a lot of dysfunction 
and don't really point out too many families that are healthy. Why, why is that? Well, first, it's because all families have some dysfunction, that's for sure. I mean, you put selfish people together in a confined space, and they all have different needs, different desires, different personalities, different love languages. Uh, they all have that selfishness that crops up all the time where they wanna get their way, and it's just a recipe for a dysfunctional mess. And so that's one of the reasons the Bible points it out is because it's one of the reasons why you find so many dysfunctional families in the Bible is because every family is dysfunctional to some degree. But there's another reason. You see, God's purpose for you is to teach you to depend upon him. God wants you to learn that you have to depend upon him for your next breath, that you have to depend upon him so you can experience his love and his grace the things that your soul is really longing for, the things that you were made for. And you'll never learn to depend upon God until you see that you're powerless to really overcome your sins and your problems on your own. And so God allows many times dysfunction in families. God allows families to get into a big mess so they'll learn to depend upon him. And, and, and many times, you know, it's like, a large part of the family, it's not their fault. They're doing everything right. They're trusting God, and, and they're really trying to do the right thing, but yet they get hurt and wounded, and the family is fracturing, and there's pain, and there's problems, and there's dysfunction, so that you have to go, God, I can't fix this one. I need you. And then he begins to make his presence so known in your life, and you're filled up with his grace and his love in the middle of the mess. So I just want to say, if your family is a mess right now, there's great hope for you. Because in the middle of that mess, God wants to work miracles. In the middle of that mess, God wants to teach you to depend upon him and come to him for healing in your heart, for strength, when you just can't fix it. And it's like, God, I give up. I don't know what to do. That's when you experience God the most. And so God's whole purpose is to teach us to depend upon him, and we rarely depend on him until we get in a place where we can't fix it. We can't control it. We can't solve it. We can't heal it. And that's how God brings us so close to himself. And then we discover the whole reason we were born, the deep relationship with him. We realize that he can see us through. There's so much hope. I just want you to know that. And as we kick off this series, I thought it was so appropriate to talk about this because I want you to know that every family is dysfunctional. And the quicker you face that, then the quicker you can start building something beautiful out of the mess. You see, a lot of people think in their marriage that they come into marriage and everything is perfect. And then after a few years, it's not so perfect anymore. It used to be great. We were so in love. And now everything's bad. We've hurt each other and we're not in love anymore. We've lost those feelings, and so they, they think that it was perfect when they came into marriage. No, you were never perfect. Your marriage was never perfect. I mean, the reason why families are dysfunctional is because I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional. That's why. As individuals, we are more messed up than we can imagine. We are more broken. We are more flawed than we can ever realize, and so when two broken people who are messed up come together to share everything in a marriage, it was never perfect. 
But if you face that fact and you come together and realize your brokenness and you bring your brokenness to God and to each other and you say, you know what? We're gonna start building something beautiful out of the broken pieces. Then you, every day, choose to love and to build something beautiful. God teaches you to become a servant to the other. God, God teaches you, you know, how to be unselfish. God teaches you patience. God teaches you all these things that you can never learn outside of family. And then you start building something beautiful, a beautiful marriage, a beautiful family. But if you think when you got married, everything was perfect, you're sadly mistaken. It was a mess when you got married. Just the honeymoon stage covered it up. You didn't realize it, but that fades pretty quickly and you realize the true situation, it's dysfunction. And then when you face it, hey, I'm gonna take these broken pieces and we're gonna build something beautiful out of it with God's power, with hard work, with God's grace and God's power and everyday choosing to love. We're gonna build something beautiful. And that's how you build a beautiful family. You have to build it out of the brokenness. Well, where do we get our dysfunction from? Because dysfunction never destroys a family. It's not dealing with dysfunction that's destructive. Well, there's several sources. First is our family of origin. In marriage, we all bring these issues into the relationship that we got from our family of origin. No one escapes their family without some baggage, even the best of families. And so we all have these ways of relating that are incorrect that we've learned over the years that we bring into our family with us that come from our family of origin. And the best way to deal with that is honor and honesty. To honor your parents for all the amazing things they did. To honor your parents. Some people never honor their parents and they just look at all the bad things. But most Christians I've found with Christian parents just honor 100% and they're never honest about their flaws and faults of their parents. I hope my kids will honor me and be honest about the mistakes I made so that they can experience healing. The reason why there's no perfect parents but our Heavenly Father is God doesn't want you to learn to depend on your parents once you grow up for your fulfillment because no human being can bring fulfillment to you. And then he doesn't want you, he puts you in an imperfect marriage because he doesn't want you to depend on your spouse for total fulfillment because no human being can meet those deepest needs in your life, only God can meet. And so when you look to a human being and you find imperfection and flaws and brokenness, it forces you to go to the only one who's not broken, the only one who can heal you, God. And so just know that for those of you who are married, by the way, God didn't design marriage to make you happy. He designed it to make you holy. If you think you're gonna get married, it's gonna make you happy, it's not gonna work. Because no human being can make you happy. That only comes from the Lord. Fulfillment comes from the Lord in your relationship with him. And as you grow closer to him, you both grow closer to him, you grow closer to each other. And you find adventure and you know, excitement and passion. And, and you find fulfillment in the Lord. It takes the pressure off so that you don't have to find fulfillment in someone who can't bring you ultimate fulfillment. And then you're free to love each other. The purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. A lot of people say, well, I'm just not happy in my marriage. That's not the purpose. No wonder you're not happy because you're looking for a human being to make you happy. That's not your spouse's job. It's you going to God to find fulfillment 
to become the person God has called you to be. It's not to be happy, it's to be holy, to be more like Jesus. And so in the family of origin, be honest and honor at the same time. And then there are differences, personality differences, their different needs, different love languages, those differences create dysfunction. And then there's selfishness. That's the root of all dysfunction in a family is because we are bent towards selfishness. And you put two selfish people together fighting to get their way and it causes dysfunction. But if you can face that and you can recognize that, hey, we've got some dysfunction, but that's okay. We're gonna keep turning to God to build something beautiful, to follow God's principles. But if you don't do that, it turns into disease. Disease, and there are four symptoms that disease is spreading in a family. First, avoidance, where nobody ever talks about the tough issues. If there's any problem, they sweep it under the carpet. Anything negative, they just sweep it under the carpet. There's an elephant in the room and everyone knows it, but no one talks about it. That's disease. And then addictions, when a family member starts trying to escape their pain, they get stuck in addiction, and that's disease, and it affects everyone in the family. And then attacks. Arguing is really healthy in a family because you can use conflict to get you to a deeper level. But if you're just attacking each other, personal attacks on each other and not getting to deeper issues, that's disease. Then animosity. It's when the bitterness builds up because hurt and anger are always stuffed down. And it always leads eventually to death. Death. Usually in a family, the disease has to get so bad that it brings death to denial. And you get to the place where you realize you can't fix it. It brings death to self, death to pride, death to trying to control, death to the dream that your family will be perfect, death to the dream that you don't need anyone else to help because you've got it all together, death. But here's the great news. You can't get to destiny unless you go through death. It's so true. You can't, if you're in the place right now where maybe there's a place in your family that has just died, there's a place in your heart that has died, a place in that dream that has just died, just know this, God brings us to the point of death where it's death to ourselves, where we realize we cannot fix this one. I heard a dad one time that I was talking with and he was telling me about his teenage daughter that was going through a, a struggle, that he had tried everything. He had done everything he could do to try to help her get through this struggle, and she was struggling even worse. And he said, Carrie, I just felt like my arms have been cut off. I've always been able to fix things, but now I just feel useless and helpless. I said, that's where God wants you to be, right where he wants you to be. Because you can turn to his strong arms, and he can hold you and your daughter. He's strong enough. And some of you feel like your arms have been cut off right now. I mean, you've tried everything. You're hitting a brick wall. God says, it's time to depend on me and feel my peace. It's death. Now, maybe your marriage has died. Maybe your family's been torn apart. And I'm not saying that God is gonna put it all back together. He gives us all choices. Many times we make sinful, destructive choices. But I am saying God will put your heart back together for sure. And God has the power to put your family back together but you have to give it to him. And God says, I will put your heart back together. But I'm telling you, every family that makes it to destiny has to come to death to their denial. You have to face the fact that you're broken and you need a healer 
You have to face the fact that you can't do it on your own. You need God, you need others. And so what I want us to do in introducing this series is look at a passage in John where we see Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in this miracle, we see how God has to move us from death to destiny in our families. So open your Bibles to John chapter 11, and would you stand in honor of God's word? And just follow along with me. This miracle is just packed with principles that are family changing. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Dear God, I thank you that no matter where we're at right now, maybe there's death to a dream or death to a relationship or just death to the realization that we can't fix it, Lord, that, we, that only you can do it. Death to our perfect dream. I pray that you would just bring life. Bring life to families. Bring life to broken hearts. Lord, just bring life. I pray for everyone worshiping with us through our broadcast and online ministry, wherever they are, everyone at our satellite campuses, everyone here in the Woodlands campus, that you would just speak to our hearts right where we are. Lord, I know every one of us have death in some part of our life, and we're grieving some hurt, and I pray that you would bring life to us, as only you can. And Lord, we thank you that in the middle of the mess, you work your greatest miracles. Do that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated, and Jesus, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days, and nothing's impossible with God. There's so much hope. If your family is a mess right now, God can work a miracle. But first, he wants to work a miracle in your heart. Look at this verse, verse three. Let's just break it down. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the first thing Mary and Martha did when their brother got sick is they called on Christ. They turned to the healer. I mean, they didn't wait. Now, most of us wait until we feel like our arms are cut off. Most of us wait until we've tried everything else and we realize we can't fix this one, and then we go to God. It turns us to God. Well, these sisters knew right away. They went right to God. They went right to Christ. Some of you are still trying to solve it on your own. You're still trying to fix it. You're still trying to control it, and you haven't gone to God. God is just waiting, and it will move from disease to death until you come to God because God loves you so much. He wants you to learn to depend upon him so he can move you into your destiny. Well, I want you to look at this next part, verse five and six. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That's the most interesting part of this whole story. Jesus loved Lazarus, but once he heard he was sick, he stayed where he was two more days before he left. And there will be times when you will go through painful delays in your life that God allows because he's teaching you to trust him in spite of the results. There will be times when you're trying to break through and you're praying and you're going, God, I've been praying for my teenager and nothing's happening. It's getting worse. 
God, I've been praying for my marriage and it's getting worse. God, I feel like throwing in the towel. Why aren't you hearing my prayer? And God will allow you to go through those delays to build your faith, to know that in spite of everything that he loves you and he has the best in mind for you. When you can't see God's hand and what he's doing, you could trust his heart and then you choose to persevere in prayer. You choose to keep doing what God tells you to do. You choose whether the results are there or not. You keep choosing to persevere. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus told the disciples, okay, Lazarus has now fallen asleep, so it's time for us to go. And the disciples said, well, wait, Lord, if he's fallen asleep and he's sick, he probably needs his sleep, so we shouldn't go and wake him up. Just let him sleep so he can get over this cold, you know? And Jesus is going, you guys just don't get it. Okay, verse 14, he says, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus said, the delay was all part of my plan, so that it would build your faith. The delay was part of my plan because it's one thing to heal a sick man, it's another thing to raise a dead man. And I let it go from disease to death so that it would build your faith and get you to trust in me, to know that I'm the one who can raise those dead in your life. I can raise the dead parts of your heart. I can raise those things that have died out in your family and bring back the passion. I can do that. See, he wanted the disciples to know that he was the one they could depend upon. He was the resurrection and the life. The only way you build a strong family is you go through difficulties and adversity together. You go through delays together and you stick together. For those of you who are married, you will go through storms. You will go through delays. You will go through difficulties. You will go through the earthquakes of life. You will go through the floods of life. And the floodwaters always recede. The question is, will you still be together? Will the flood draw you closer together or will it tear you apart? It all depends on the choices you make in the middle of the storms. Verse 32 says, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she's totally honest with Jesus. She runs out to meet him, says, where were you? If you'd been here, then he would be alive right now. We believe in you. We prayed. We prayed right away. We didn't wait. We prayed right away. And you didn't come through. What were you doing that was more important than our brother Lazarus, who you said you loved? I mean, why did you delay, Lord? If you'd been here sooner, he wouldn't be dead right now. She just kind of lets Christ have it, you know, in her hurt and anger and her questions, and they're good questions, and Jesus doesn't rebuke her. And that's why it's so important for us to pour our hearts out to him, even in our anger, when we're in the delays of life and we wonder, we're praying something that's so good and he doesn't come through, or he doesn't come through like we think he should. It's so important to say it. He wants us to bring it to him like Mary did for some of you. I'm sure there's a teenager out there who says, God, where were you? Why did you allow my mom and dad to get a divorce? If you'd been here sooner, our family would still be together. Where were you? I prayed and you didn't come through. I know there's a wife out there who says, God, where were you when my husband betrayed my trust and committed adultery? If you'd been there sooner, you could have stopped this, God. I mean, why did you allow this? If you had been there sooner and just told me, then I I wouldn't have been hurt like this, God. Where were you? 
or the parent who says, God, if you'd just been there sooner, my, my teenager wouldn't have been hooked on drugs and gone down this path. Where were you? I've been praying for them. I've been doing everything right. Where were you? If you'd been here sooner, you could have stopped all the pain. And Jesus doesn't answer. And on this earth, we won't get all the answers. We just know that he knows what's best and we can't see the big picture, but I don't understand why he allows the pain. But I do know that he cares and he loves us so much. And the answers wouldn't really comfort us. He's the only one that can comfort us. In verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Underline, Jesus wept. The God who created it all cries when our hearts are crushed. See, Christianity is different from all the other world religions because the God in all the other world religions is a God like our Christian God who's almighty and all-powerful, and just and holy, but Christianity is the only religion that has a God who cries. He cries when we're hurting. But underline that phrase, when anger welled up within him. Deep anger welled up within him. You see, he saw death and the hurt and the pain that death caused, and death is a result of our sin. And Adam and Eve, you know, they were in the perfect paradise to live eternally, and they sin, and sin brings death, spiritual death, and eventually physical death. And so he saw what death had done and how devastating it is. And, and he was angry about sin and the devastation of sin. It welled up within him. And that's so good to know that we have a God who was filled with anger at the sins and the evil that inflict pain upon people in this world. For those of you who've been abused, just know the deep anger of God wells up against that sin that causes so much pain, so much devastation. I'm so glad to know that we have a God who cares deeply, but he gets so angry at sin. Now, he's not angry at your sin. He's not angry at you. He's angry at what sin does to you. When you choose sin, He's filled with anger at that sin because it devastates you. It brings death and devastation and destruction in relationships. And so he's angry at that sin and what it does. And his heart is broken for you. And, and I can say this. I don't know why God allows someone to be abused. But I know one thing. God can even take the worst and use it so that we hate sin like he hates sin. He brings that anger up within us to hate evil and to hate sin and what sin does to us in our relationships. He wants us to love like he loves and to hate like he hates, to hate sin, to love people. And so God gets angry at sin and what it does and the consequences of it in our lives. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead men, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been dead four days. So Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha just shares the truth. She says, Lord, he's been dead four days. He's gonna stink really bad. If you open up that 
grave, you roll that stone away a little bit, I mean, there's gonna be a stench that is gonna make everybody leave. And I just want you to think for a minute in your own life. Some of you stink really badly, but you don't know it because your spiritual nostrils have been desensitized. But it stinks, you know? There's a stench in your family and everyone knows it and you're denying it. You got an anger problem and it's devastating in your family. You stink badly, but you're not facing the truth. I love that Martha just faced the truth. I mean, our problem stinks right here, you know? He's dead. Not mostly dead, he's all the way dead. He's dead. And it really stinks. Until you wake up and smell the pig pen that you're in, you can never find freedom, you can never find hope, you never find healing. And so sometimes God allows us to just smell how bad it is. And we come to that place where we realize, wow, it's devastating. It's devastating my family. Then there's hope. Well, then Martha said he's been dead four days. Are you sure you wanna take the risk? You see, Jesus was taking a risk, but it wasn't really a risk for Jesus because he was gonna raise the dead. He's God himself. Really, the risk was Martha and the people obeying Jesus. When Jesus said, roll the stone away, Martha was saying, hey, Jesus, it's not like he just died a few minutes ago and his body's still warm and, and you can do a little CPR and pray over him. And just maybe, you know, there's a 1% chance maybe. No, he's been dead four days. He stinks. And so it's a great risk. I know what you're trying to do here. I think you're gonna try to raise him from the dead, but I mean, if you've just been here earlier, maybe this would've worked, but this is kinda crazy now. It wasn't a risk to Jesus. He knew he was gonna raise him from the dead, but Martha had to risk opening up the tomb a little bit and letting some light of faith and hope in. And some of you, the tomb has been sealed, and Jesus is asking you today, just roll the stone away, just a little bit, let the light of hope in and believe that I can work a miracle in this mess but you've rolled the stone over and it's like, I give up, I give up. If you just roll the stone back just a little bit and let the light of hope in, that's all he needs to work his miracle. He's the one that does the resurrecting, but you have to have the faith to just roll the stone a little bit, let some light in into your heart for the first time maybe in a long time. And then some of you, to have some faith, you gotta roll the stone over the issue or the relationship. When you're in an abusive situation, then you gotta roll the stone over your marriage and say it's over and it's done because that's the only hope that you have of ever saving the marriage. To wake someone up enough to say, I'm gonna get the counseling I need, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna work through this. Like, You gotta roll the stone over, it's over, it's done. When you have a spouse that continually betrays your trust, I mean, there comes a time when it's like, you gotta roll the stone over the marriage and say it's done so that there's a little bit of hope for that marriage so that they'll wake up and see they gotta change. Sometimes you gotta roll the stone over to have faith. Most of the time it's rolling it back a little bit. So they did, they rolled it back. And look what happens after they rolled it back. In verse 47, then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And he did. And he shouts today, your name, and he says, Come out. Bob, come out. Susan, come out. 
Steve, come out. He says, come out. Come out from the dark and step into the light of truth. Come out from hiding your pain and come out into the light and let me bring the light of healing and warmth to you. Come out from the darkness of the lies and bring it into the light and let the light disinfect it and the truth will set you free. Come out of the darkness of doing it by yourself and come out into the light of community to know we're all in the same boat. Come out of the darkness of despair and know that you can feel the light of my presence and healing. He calls you by name and says, come out, it's time. It's time for you to come out. It's time for you to take that step of faith and come out. And the dead man came out. And then notice here what happens as he comes out of the grave. It says the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So get the picture. This man's been dead for four days and he comes stumbling out of the grave cave looking like a mummy all wrapped up in grave clothes. He can barely walk. He's about to fall over and everyone just stands there in stunned silence. And Jesus says, go help him. He's about to fall over. It looks like a mummy. Unwrap him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they, they go and they unwrap the grave clothes. Now, it's interesting to me because those grave clothes really represent all the negative habit patterns and, and all the uh, sinful hang-up patterns in our minds that once Christ resurrects you and raises you, and gives you new life, you still have those habit patterns and those negative ways of thinking in your mind that have to be renewed. You didn't get them overnight, and God has to renew your mind and, and rewire your, your mind. Those are the grave clothes. He was alive. Lazarus was alive, but he still was wrapped in the grave clothes that kept him from being free. And who helped him? His friends. Jesus resurrects us, but then we need others to take the grave clothes off. You need Christian counseling in your marriage. Help take the grave clothes off to open your eyes so your mind can be renewed. You need friends and accountability. You need to be in a life group. You need to be a member of a church family. You need others to help you take the grave clothes off so that you can be free. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're alive. But you gotta be free. And so, I think every marriage needs Christian counseling. I think... You know, we, we all need a life group. We all need accountability. We all need encouragement. We all need others to help us take the grave clothes off. But he comes out, and I want us to go back and look at verse 25, where Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You see, Christ allows us to go through over and over again in our lives Death so we can get to destiny. So we can give up trying to do it ourselves and solve it on our own. And we can come to him and experience his life. Some of you are at death in some area of your life. You're at a dead end. And God has you there for a reason. God works his greatest miracles at the dead end place. And it's the only place where God really gets our attention enough so that we can just give up to him and experience his love and grace. And be filled with his peace. Some of you today are right there at that place, and you're in a good place. There's so much hope. All you have to do is just step out into the light, and just a little bit of faith 
Turn it over to the resurrection and the life and let him bring you back to life. I love this verse in Joel 2.25. So I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You see, the people of Israel had their crops eaten away by the plague of locusts that God allowed to come in because as they disobeyed God, God would allow these plagues of locusts to come in and just steal away and eat away all their crops. And then when they finally got to the place of, man, it's death, it's such a famine, the locusts come in every year and everything we're working for, they just take it away. And, and finally the people said, maybe it's because we're disobeying God and we're just forgetting God. They came back to God and said, God, we need you. And he said, I forgive you and I'm also gonna restore to you all the years that the locusts had eaten. I'm gonna restore every year. I'm gonna, all the wasted years, all those lost years, all those selfish years, all those broken years, I'm gonna restore them all to you. And I believe he's saying that to you today. All the wasted years, all the sinful years, all the selfish years, all the years that you wish you could go back and fix it all, you can't fix it all, but he wants to restore the years to move you into a new future filled with his purpose. Years of purpose, years of meaning, years of fulfillment, years where you're a servant and have courage and step out in faith as a man or woman of God. He wants to restore those years. Ann Voskamp wrote this letter to her husband and it really shows me the, the main point of this whole message is you gotta face your dysfunction. You gotta face your brokenness so that you can choose to build something beautiful with God's power. She says, dear husband, we married wrong. Everyone always marries wrong because what's wrong in the world is always us. Marriage changes us into strangers who have to meet again and introduce each other to love. None of us ever know whom we marry and falling in love never made anyone angels. It's only made it clear how far we've fallen. When we say I do or who we say I do to is not who we roll over to touch 20 years later. The challenge for the vows is to fall in love with the stranger to whom you find yourself married. The vows are a vow to make the stranger you marry come to intimately know love every day. This is the only way we become married to the right people. Real love truthfully sees the flaws and still really loves fully. Love isn't blind, it's the only way of really seeing. Do you really see where you're at right now? Do you really see the brokenness? Do you really see the pain and the hurt? Do you really see how much you need God in your life and in your relationships? If you're at that place, then you're in a great place for God to work. When you see that your arms are cut off and you can't do it, when you see that you don't have the power to overcome it, you turn to God, the overcomer, and he will see you through. He will hold you with his arms and he'll never let you go. Let's bow together and pray. Dear God, I know that so many in our culture have believed the lie. Lord, that you're supposed to marry the perfect person, have the perfect marriage, and when things aren't perfect, then you just leave. Families are falling apart and Lord, I just pray right now that you would just restore families, how we need you to restore families in our nation. Lord, we need you to restore marriages, restore families. But Lord, we know that every family is hurting. Every family has brokenness. 
And I pray that you would allow that brokenness to lead us to blessedness, that we would face it, we would start working on it, and we'd start building something beautiful a little at a time. We'd keep choosing, Lord, to be servants. We'd keep choosing, Lord, to be honest. We would keep choosing to do whatever it takes to follow you. And Lord, we do pray for healing, that you would bring healing to hearts. I pray for those who've never received you, that they would pray this prayer right now, silently to you, as if they're the only person in this place. Dear Jesus Christ, I give up. I'm tired of trying to make it on my own. I need you. I need your forgiveness of all my sins. I need you to come into my life and give me your strength and then take me to heaven one day. I need you to be the Lord of my life. I've tried to do it on my own, and it's a mess. Work a miracle, Lord, out of my mess. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You prayed that prayer, Christ came into your life. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And now we're at the point of our service where we give back to God some of what he's given us. And I just really encourage you uh, to give to him out of faith and make sure it becomes a habit. For those of you who are, are new, I encourage you to give. Uh, give what you can because God's using this church in an amazing way to really meet the needs of thousands upon thousands of hurting and hopeless people. And it's amazing to see how the church is raising up the poor and the powerless, and the church is raising up the next generation, raising up the gospel of hope to make such a difference. So I just really encourage you to give. And think of a way that's best for you to give. There's so many ways to give. Um, we have our push pay app. We have our online giving. And we, you give and you give in the offering. But you need to make it consistent for God's glory, to put God first. And God says, whatever area you put me first in, I'll bless you in. I'll meet your needs. I'll bless the rest. And then pray for God to multiply it. Lord, we love you. We pray you'd bless our giving, that you would just, Lord, give back to all those who give. And I pray you'd multiply their gifts in such a way that, Lord, it would just meet the needs of so many hurting people as we keep reaching out with all of our ministries and missions that you would provide for them. I pray that you would just do all that you wanna do in our hearts through our giving. Thank you, Lord, we get the opportunity to give to you. Just some of what you've given us already. Um, and Lord, we just thank you for how you restore the years. When we, Lord, don't give you credit, when we don't give you what is due, Lord, we know we experience the devastation of that, but thank you that you restore the years. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Um, uh, that song that Josh wrote, Restore the Years, just came out on all the uh, platforms, Spotify and Apple Music and all of them. And uh, Woodlands Worship has, is on Friday, we released the whole album this Friday. Um, and it is amazing. So I hope you'll stream it on your favorite platform. Um, it's just amazing. God's using it all over the the country right now and it's on it's on some amazing playlists all the songs that have come out so far so here's a couple of the cds um i'll throw those out and they, they hurt be careful be careful but it comes out and all the whole album comes out friday and all the platforms mother's day will have the uh, vinyls and the cds in the bookstore but i'm so proud of woodlands worship all these original songs that churches are singing and making an impact around the country God bless you, Woodlands Church. Be back next week. We're going to do some rock climbing, and we're going to talk about family. 
Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.